0: Thanks, Pastor Kyle. Don't we have a wonderful pastor And Pastor Kyle? I just love him and the worship team. You know, they're so faithful to serve us every week and to lead us in worship and song, and they do such an excellent job, and just love having him lead us and lead me, and it's so great. This morning, we're continuing on a sermon, uh, which is really Jesus' sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The most popular, the most famous sermon there ever was, a sermon in which other sermons were written about and other preachers preached on uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we call it a mountain of a sermon because uh, the depth and the riches of Jesus' teaching in Matthew are, are, uh, are so deep, are so rich, and so uh, Jesus preached all throughout Galilee, all throughout his area, all in throughout Israel, and he didn't just preach these sermons one time. It wasn't just the Sermon on the Mount, and then he never brought up anything again. He continued to use this. This was part of his repertoire. This was his sermon series. He had these doctrines, these teachings that he uh, taught all throughout Galilee. There was hundreds of synagogues, and, and it says that he taught in each one, and he would go around, and he wanted people to know about the kingdom of God. He wanted us to know what is God's kingdom like? What is is he doing? What is he like? And in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, after the blessings, he moves into the topic of anger. His first sermon, as he's preaching through this, he chooses to address anger. How many of you have ever heard of a rage room? Anybody ever hear of a rage room? They're all the rage right now. They're like the new up-and-coming thing. One of their slogans is, rage rooms offer a smashing good time. Uh, If you don't know what a a rage room is, it's a place where you spend money to let out your anger. Watch this really short clip of what a rage room is, just in case you don't know. it's kind of a silly video, but, but really that's true. Uh, just like axe throwing is kind of up and coming, rage rooms are this way. And this is the idea. Hey, you've got pent-up energy and rage and anger, and you need to let that out. And so they, you pay money to destroy stuff, like donated printers and computers and glass stuff, and gnomes are apparently really popular. And, or seriously, that's like a big thing. They're, they're really into that. And you pay money to do this, and the reason why I bring this up, I mean this isn't this isn't significant for us. We I don't want to go to a rage room. But this is how our culture is viewing anger. How do you deal with anger? You got to let it out. You got to vent. It's not just entertainment. It's something deeper and more meaningful than entertainment. So much so that a secular psychologist, a very famous one out in Chicago, spoke about rage rooms because it's becoming more and more popular, not just in Europe, but in the United States. And so I want to read to you what Bernie Golden, he's like an authority, not for us, not the Bible, but this kind of brings us into this whole issue of how our culture is dealing with this. He specializes in anger in particular, and he said this in an interview. Rage rooms are not an effective strategy for managing anger because on one hand, people may feel a release of the tension, the tension in the body that's associated with anger. So you might walk out thinking, ooh, that feels good. Because your cortisol and all the other hormones that make you feel agitated, they lessen. However, taking part in this sport doesn't really help people understand their anger. Anger is about a threat as well as negative emotions. So one might feel devalued, discounted, disrespected, rejected, and for many people, it's much more comfortable to be angry and focused on the person or situation than sit with those more uncomfortable feelings. I'm bringing this up because this is mainstream how our culture outside of the Bible, outside of God, is approaching anger. And I want you to pay attention. A secular psychologist explains in the media, this was on Mainstream News it is more comfortable to stoke the flame of your anger and to react physically than to actually deal with it personally. And you know, that's true with most people, isn't it? Isn't it easier to just react in anger than it is to deal with it? We, we react rather than respond. Uh, if you have kids, how many times have you ever felt angry with your kids? Um, I remember one particular situation... I was in bed sleeping, as a dad does, at 2 a.m. And into my room comes a precious child, one of my offspring. And he walks into the room, and he had wet the bed. And he wakes me up, and he wet the bed. And I get up, and it's 2 a.m. I got things going on. I've got important life stuff to do, decisions to make. And so, like, I'm not wanting to be up at 2 a.m. I'm a light sleeper. It takes me a while to get back to sleep. So I get up frustrated. I go in. He's wet the bed. I take the sheets off the mattress. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. And what I'm really not wanting to do is express my frustration because I'm upset. But I did it anyway. I was wrong. I was filled with anger and frustration. And I was just, you know, quick, tempered, you know, just kind of twitchy, kind of like, oh, fine, do this. Take that off, you know, do that kind of thing. And I was responding wrong. And by the grace of God, this doesn't happen all the time. I'm not perfect. But God just convicted my heart just in an instant, and said, is this how I treat you, Jack? I thought, no, and I'm so grateful to God. I, I realized I, I was sinning, I was wrong. So I changed my tune, I, I gave him a hug, I said, hey buddy, you know, we, we'll take care of this, and, and I, I picked him up, he was a smaller one, and I pick him up, and, and you know, it's okay, and I talked to him, and, and I told him, you know, I used to wet the bed as a kid. I wet the bed till I was, I think I was 12 years old. I didn't want anybody to know that. And I'm, I'm frustrated with my kid because he wet the bed. He doesn't even always wet the bed. And so I told him, you know, you know, Daddy wet the bed when I was a kid too, and it's okay, and I know you didn't mean to, and we're going to get this cleaned up. And we talk about it, and we play, and I put him to bed, and I realized I had let my anger get a hold of me. I wasn't full of the Spirit. I wasn't, it wasn't the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, patience, kindness, goodness, love, joy, none of that. And I realized, God, I need you. I need you to fill me up. I know this is wrong. And, and I had to repent before God can get me back to where I needed to be. But how many times uh, can you relate to that where you just responded and reacted in anger? Uh, people on the road make us angry. I just received a message last week. This person didn't even know I was preaching on uh, Matthew chapter, which he should have. But he didn't know. He really didn't know. I was preaching on this this Sunday He sent me a note. He's in this church. He said, Jack, I am seeing something so troubling on the road that it has me telling you about it. In more than 42 years on the road, I have seen a lot of very terrible things. But the anger and aggression I'm seeing now is at a whole new level. It's to the point where I don't want to be out here anymore. People are doing incredibly dangerous things in anger. And he just went on to talk about people reacting in anger. And this guy goes to our church. He's been driving for 42 years on the road. He said it's worse now. And if you read the the news, if you read the media, do you know in the last year that uh, violent crimes, domestic crimes, suicide, murder, uh, domestic abuse, do you know that violence, the stats on violence, has risen tremendously in the last year and a half? It has risen not just 1%, 2%, 3%, 10 and 15%. People are not knowing how to process their frustration and their anger and their feelings. They're not doing it. They're not responding in a healthy way. And it's not just out there. It's in our church, too. We don't always respond rightly in anger. As a matter of fact, instead, what we're good at is justifying our anger. How many times have you heard some rendition of this statement? Well it's okay for me to be angry because uh, they were wrong. I-, I should be angry, they're in the wrong. Or, I can't help it, it's, uh, they just make me angry. Or, or uh, one of my favorites, well, I'm Irish. And it's like, dude, listen, if you got to go back to Ancestry.com to justify why it's okay that you get angry quickly— you're deceiving yourself, okay? Your GNA is no different than mine. We all inherited sin from Adam. Just because you're Irish doesn't mean, oh, of course you're going to be more angry. No. Maybe your family has a worse habit, a, a longer habit of being angry. It's sin. You don't need medicine. You don't need to make excuses. You need to repent. <laughs> sin is sin. Right. Amen. Thank you. There's, yeah, you guys can also amen if it's true to the Bible. You guys are tough, Okay. <laughs> Anyway, we try to justify our anger, and I want you to think about how the Bible depicts human anger. I just want to walk through it just for a moment. Consider Cain and Abel, the first siblings, the first sons. Cain got angry with Abel, and he murdered his brother. King Saul, uh, at the beginning of the monarchy, as King Saul is trying to Gather together this loose confederation of tribes together. His jealousy turned to anger at David, and he spent the latter part of his life trying to murder God's anointed one, the next king. Uh, Jonah, Jonah, the minor prophet Jonah, he was so angry with the Ninevites that he would rather watch them burn and die because they wanted to repent. He'd rather watch them burn and die than to see them repent. He was so angry with the whole people group. Uh, Jezebel murdered Naboth uh, for Ahab just so he could have a garden. She murdered a man so that her husband could have a garden. And they're not exactly a good couple to look up to. But anyway, uh, Haman, in Esther's story, Haman got so upset with Mordecai that not only did he want to murder this man that he was jealous of, uh, jealous of he wanted to murder an entire race of people, all the Jews. And that's not just in the Bible, is it? Think about Hitler in Nazi Germany. How is it possible that one man convinced an entire nation to be so angry at people not like them that within five years, between 1941 and 1945, they murdered over 16 million people? Murdered, slaughtered, tortured 16 million people out of anger. Have you seen Hitler's sermons? You ever hear a video? I don't even know German. I don't even know what he's saying. And the second that I hear his voice, all he's exuding is anger. And he's trying, it's like he's trying to extend that human fleshly anger on a whole people group. This is where you direct your anger. Anger has always been a problem for human beings. Always. It's been a problem for them. It's been a problem for us. It's a real problem, and Jesus chose to address it in the Sermon on the Mount. That was his first sermon topic. After the blessings, when he's ready to talk about issues, he steps directly into speaking about anger. So in Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. And whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court." So Jesus opens up. His intro to his sermon is, hey, you guys heard from the ancients or you've heard long ago from the people of Israel. He's talking about the Old Testament. You've heard from Moses, right, 1,500 years before this. You've heard that you shall not murder. It's the Sixth Commandment and the Ten Commandments in, in the American westernized version of the, Ten, of the Ten Commandments. It's the Sixth Commandment. Thou shall not murder. And they were all like, yeah, we know that. We, we, I mean, all of them would agree. Everyone knows you shouldn't murder. Kind of, unless you're pro abortion, unless you live in Nazi Germany, it's 80 years ago, 70 years ago. Do we really know how wrong murder is? Do we believe, like the Bible teaches, how we ought to treat one another and the value of life and the image that we're created in? But they take it, and Jesus begins a sermon Hey, you guys know that murder is wrong, right? They all agree. And then he made it clear, yeah, murder is wrong, and so is anger. Anger is just as significant as murder, which is his second point, he, or his first point. The first point of Jesus' sermon is, hey, you know how bad murder is? Guess what? Anger is the same way. Look at, look at what he says in Matthew 5.22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. What he's referring back to is Numbers chapter 35. He, he's going back to, hey, you guys know how murder is wrong, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. You know the penalty for murder, if, if unless it was on accident, the death penalty was the only sentencing for murder. That was it. Either you did it on purpose or you did it maliciously or you did it out of anger or it was a complete accident. If it was an accident, if you read back in Numbers, they had six cities of refuge that you could go to. You couldn't stay in your hometown because that would just incite your neighbor to want to take revenge on you. And so they, God decided in his wisdom, if you accidentally kill somebody and it was a true accident, you have to move to one of six cities that they designated for Israel, and you had to be away so that someone doesn't take vengeance. And you had to leave your family and you had to go away because this was so serious. And You would be answerable to the court. They knew this. The Jews knew how bad murder was. And Jesus says, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's, he's moving from anger to murder and saying, this is just as significant as murder. The, cons- the, the penalty, you should be held before the judge and be judged for your anger, just like murder. Angry with his brother. It reminds me of texting and driving. I don't know if you guys remember. Do you remember when texting and driving first became a thing? I do. I remember I was a little bit younger and people started being able to text on their phones and they were driving and people were dying. Mainly younger people were texting and driving and getting in accidents and, and dying. And so they they set up a whole new campaign. They decided to put money toward it. We're gonna put it on billboards. No texting and driving. Texting kills. They had videos of what it uh, looks like for a teenager to not look at the road and how serious it was. And this was the mantra. Texting and driving is just as significant as drunk driving. That was the big push. You guys don't understand. It is killing kids. It is killing people. You cannot text and drive. And I remember some people saying, yeah, they say it's bad, but I do it anyway. Or yeah, I know it's not a good idea. And people were making excuses because deep down inside they're like, is this as significant? Is this really as bad as drunk driving? Drunk driving, we all know, is so bad unless you drink and drive. And I know some of you do. And I've got family members, and I've got friends, and I've wanted to beat over the head. You think you're fine, you've made it so far, and you're putting people's lives at risk. You shouldn't get drunk anyway, and you surely shouldn't drive after drinking, no matter how much you have drunk. Sorry, that was a commercial or something else, but um, <laughs> it gets at me because people think, well, I'll take responsibility. You can't, because if you accidentally kill somebody, you can't undo that. You're not taking responsibility of yourself, and you're not going to pay for all the act consequences. Drinking and driving is a sin. It's wrong. It's against the law. And I remember texting and driving being like that, and that's the kind of feeling that these Jews were having when Jesus says, yeah, murder's this bad? Well, guess what? Being angry at your brother. You should be answerable to the court. That's the kind of reaction they would have, like, whoa, 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 being angry? The same as murder? That's just as significant as murder? And so Jesus is speaking about uh, anger and he's speaking about unrighteous anger. He's not just speaking about any kind of anger. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 uh, Paul writes, he says, be angry and do not sin. He's quoting Psalm chapter 4 verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. While you're on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. It's a great passage to memorize if you struggle with anger. Uh, same with James 1:19 through 20. Uh, the Bible is explicit on anger. Anger itself is not a sin, but anger a lot of times leads to sin. And there is an unrighteous anger that's always sinful. There is an unrighteous anger that's sinful, but not all anger is sinful, like Jesus. Jesus had what the scholars call righteous indignation. That's a fancy way of saying acceptable anger. It's good anger. It's not sinful anger. It's not bad anger. You could be angry at sin, and that's okay. And what's really cool is, Jesus specifically uses murder as a contrast, as a, as a sermon illustration to get to anger. Why would he do this? Well, some of the reasons could be murder is a sin, correct? Murder is a sin. Is killing a sin? No. I know that may sound shocking. Go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember when God commanded Joshua to kill all of the Canaanites? Was God commanding Joshua to sin? No, because killing itself is not the sin. Why? When is it not a sin? When is killing not a sin? God is the author and giver of life. He gives it. He takes it. Even you do not own your own life. That's why suicide is a sin. It's murder of the self. You don't own your life. Your life belongs to God. He gave you breath. He's the author and giver of life. And so, for God to say, Joshua, I want you to take their lives, it's not a sin. It's not wrong because God has the authority and ownership of life, and he can delegate that to Joshua to tell them to get rid of the Canaanites. Killing is not a sin, and unjust killing is sin. And in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, that's what they call murder. In the same way with anger, and I know I'm going to get a lot of emails about this and that's okay. It took me a long time, a lot of Bible classes and a lot of studying to to come to the grips with what God told Joshua to do. But God is the author and giver of life. And so just as murder is an unjust killing, there is unrighteous anger and there's righteous anger, like when Jesus whipped all the animals and got them out and emptied the temple. It was a righteous anger. And so Jesus is speaking of unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger usually expresses itself in slander and attack. That's how unrighteous anger in human beings is. We slander and attack each other. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, he's speaking of unrighteous anger, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. He's raising the level of anger, to as significant as murder. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So why does he elevate it? Well, when he says, whoever says you good for nothing, this is, maybe your Bible has a note, this is raka, it's like an Aramaic word to, to mean empty-headed. So if you tell someone, oh, you empty-headed, it's like slandering someone and calling them dumb. Are you supposed to call people dumb? No. That's wrong. Don't call people dumb. Don't slander people. Like in our house, we, you don't call people dumb. So Jesus is saying, if you say, if you call someone dumb, that's slandering, and, uh, and that's wrong. You shall be answerable to the court. Then he says, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. hell. Calling someone a fool in the Jewish culture is more than just saying you're dumb. It's like giving someone a title, it's like calling someone, someone If someone, if you look up the word fool in the Old Testament, how did the Jews see the word fool? It was a title for someone, you don't know God. You don't know God, you don't follow God, you belong in hell. And what's worse is, in the Jewish community, when you label someone a fool, you're not just saying, I don't want to listen to you, you're dumb. When you label someone a fool, you're telling everyone else, the elders of the community, you're telling the families Hey, I don't want to listen to them, and you shouldn't either. And you're disregarding and slandering their reputation. So Jesus raises it up a level, level, not just being angry, but then calling someone a fool and publicly letting other people know, don't listen to this person. Not only do I not want to pay attention to them, you shouldn't either. And so Jesus is elevating it, and he's saying, if you do this, you're not only answerable to the Jewish court, but you belong in a place that they would understand, the hell is more of a Greek term, but they understand this as, you belong without God. You deserve punishment. You deserve Sheol, like the grave, the death. You des- you're, 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 uh, you're approaching hell. You, you are going to be answerable in that way. And so Jesus was elevating murder, murder or anger. Anger is just as significant as murder. And it was shocking to them. Now, the Old Testament teaches us being this kind of angry only leads to evil doing. In Psalm 37, verse 8, cease from anger and abandon wrath. Do not get upset. It only leads to evil doing. Now, this is a good part of the sermon to ask, have you ever responded to someone in anger? Have you ever been so frustrated with someone that you just... Oh, you good for nothing, you fool, you, oh, I can't believe you do this, and uh, you, why did you do this? Have you ever responded in anger? Jesus is speaking of that. That anger, that sin, begins in the heart. The same with murder. Murder doesn't start in the hands, it begins in the heart. And so, uh, I think we've all said something hurtful out of anger. Uh, Jesus' half-brother who grew up with him said this about anger in James one nineteen. You know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Now everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteousness of God. Unrighteous anger is as significant as murder. Why? Because it kills relationships. Unrighteous anger kills relationships. And the rest of Jesus' sermon is about reconciliation. He's making it clear the reason why this is so significant is because this breaks you guys up, and that breaks my law, that breaks my heart. Unrighteous anger kills relationship. It, it attacks the in, image of God. Slander, hatred, bitterness, vengeance, vengeance, gossip, malice, that all begins in a heart that's angry with someone. You don't love them. You don't like them. You don't want what they're going to do or what they have done. You want nothing to do with them. You want them to disappear from the face of the planet. That all begins in the heart. And Jesus is addressing the heart issue. The whole Sermon on the Mount is really about the heart more than the action. And all of this is a result of unrighteous anger. And then Jesus does what they say. He flips the table. He he flips the script. In the first two verses, he's talking about when you are angry with someone else. That's the first two verses. These next two verses, he says, but what about if someone's angry with you? What if someone has a reason to be righteously angry at you? Look at verse 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you are going to worship, you're at the temple, and they gave offerings all year round. They gave it multiple times, whether they just had a baby or a grain offering, like a thank offering, the harvest. They have the three pilgrimage festivals that the Jews took three times a year to to go to Jerusalem. The temple was full of offerings all the time. And so he says, if you're at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So just so they would know, how serious is Jesus? How serious is he about this anger thing being at the level and punishable as murder? He connects it. He takes it a step further and connects your anger with your relationship with God. How you praise God, how you give offerings to God, how you relate to God... Your relationship with God is connected to your relationship and unresolved conflicts with the people around you. That's how serious Jesus is making it. And which is the second point, the urgency of unaddressed anger. He, he talks about the significance of unrighteous anger, and then he's talking about how significant and urgent it is if you don't address it. If you know that someone's angry with you, if you remember that your brother has something against you, you better go take care of it. And how would you know if your brother has something against you? How would you know if someone's angry at you? Well, if you're a preacher, you just know it's all the time. It's just 24/7. You don't always know who. You don't always know. You just know 24/7 someone that you find out later, oh, they were angry about that. But some of you, you don't have jobs to where you're in front of people all the time. There's not hundreds of people that know you and expect things out of you. Some of you, you have tight small circles. You don't always know. How do you know when someone's angry with you? Well, I think there's a reason why Jesus specifically mentions when you're at the temple to give offerings. Do you know when you're trying to relate to God and commune with him, you're trying to give praises to him, you want to have a good quiet time? Have you ever had a quiet time where at the beginning of it, you felt like, I can't pray. I can't move on. There's something, it's like a rock has been thrown at the pit of your stomach, like you can't move forward. I remember one time... Years ago, back when me and Courtney were first married, I was going to preach at this little country church, and I was going to get ready, and I had my passage ready, and I go to it, and I'm ready to read it. Every word in this little passage that I tried to read, I couldn't finish reading it without thinking about a conflict we had before. And I was trying to study, and I was was like, oh, I can't do this. So I started praying to God. I was angry. I was like, God, I don't know why I'm thinking about this. Can you just remove this from my mind? This is so silly, I shouldn't be thinking about this. I need to prepare, I need to study, I need to get ready for this. You know, it's work to do, I've got work to do, i got to get in there. And I'm praying this, and then it's like God said, hey, uh, I'm not removing this because I'm the one who put it there. I want you to know. And, and I remember feeling convicted that I had to go to Courtney and resolve some probably small, insignificant, what felt like conflict with her, before I could even read the Bible. And it was in that act of trying to connect with God that I knew I got to take care of this before I try to ask God to bless and work and use me. It was like God didn't want to take one step without me addressing that issue. Uh, I don't know if that's ever happened with you. Um, Someone has an issue with you and you feel like I need to go take care of it. So, why? why is the urgency so significant to him? Why why is this such a big deal? Because getting right with others precedes giving praise to God. I want you you to just try to go back 2,000 years. You're sitting there on the side of the mountain, you're hearing Jesus's sermon on anger, and he's making a big deal about it. Dads are like, I don't know if this is true. Moms are feeling convicted. I mean, everybody feels uncomfortable about this Messiah's teaching with authority because he's teaching things that feel different than what they're used to. And he's talking about anger in such a way. I mean, we all get angry. Why is he elevating it so high? So you're hearing this, and he says, hey, and when you go to the temple, don't even offer your gift at the altar until you get right with someone else. In other words, I don't even want you, it translated to our day 2,000 years ago, I don't even want you to worship God until you get right with someone else. Now just imagine if Jesus preached this sermon in this church today. If Jesus walked in here before Kyle got up and started leading us in worship and Jesus got up here and said, uh, turn, turn, off, turn off the sound system, everything off, everybody quiet, all eyes up here. Uh, we're not going to sing. We are not going to worship and finish this act of worship to God until you get right with whoever you have a relational conflict with, right? I think our attendance would be about the same it was when COVID first hit. Could you imagine if Jesus preached this sermon right now, today, in here and gave the same thing, how they would respond to it, how we would respond to it? You know how many times in the Old Testament or even in Jewish tradition, how many reasons, how many times uh, you would have a Jew going to the temple, having their offering, which is an animal Having their offering, sometimes the thank grain offerings were not animals, but you still had to use birds. Uh, They brought their offering, and they, at the temple, had to set their offering aside and leave and go do something else before they could finish. You know how many times that's mentioned or happens? Zero. This is unheard of. This is so awkward and shocking that these Jews would be like, you want us to stop the service? To go get right with someone because they're mad at us? That's how extreme it sounded to them. And that's how convicting it should feel for you. That's how significant and urgent Jesus is making this anger in our lives. That's how he looks at it. Getting right with others proceeds giving praise to God. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Reconciliation comes before the offering. Getting right with others comes before giving gifts to God. Uh, you see this in Paul's letter in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's significant to Jews about the sun going down? That's the start of what? The next day. The sun going down is the start of the next day. You know what Paul's saying that they all understood? Don't let one more day pass until you get right with that person or not get right, until you address that issue. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let one more day go where you make excuses and reasons. I can't go, I can't respond to this. I can't deal with this. I can't go to that person. Some of you, I know the Holy Spirit is convicting today. After first service, so many people not smiling, but they knew the Holy Spirit was working in their heart. There's something and somebody you need to go make right with. There's some kind of unresolved conflict that God wants you to deal with. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Address it. And I know we make excuses. I've made these excuses. I don't want to make it worse. How many have ever felt like that? I don't want to bring something up. I don't want to make it worse, right? I don't want to address that. Well, guess what? Jesus is saying it's not making it worse. He gives no exception clause. You need to, now, of course there are exceptions, right? You don't need to put yourself in danger and put yourself susceptible to being murdered or abused to go try to reconcile with someone that's unhealthy. You know, Jesus, it's not the letter of the law like keeping the Sabbath and you can't help your ox get out of the ditch kind of thing, but he's being very serious about this anger issue. You need to go today and deal with this. If Jesus were your pastor and he were preaching to you the same sermon he preached then, you know what the application and out-the-door walk would be? Before the end of the day, you address in some way this unresolved conflict you have with someone else. Right now, today. Don't let the day go by. That's how serious Jesus was about it. And so it's better to make the relationship awkward and address the issue than ignore it and invite God's judgment. Don't give an opportunity for the devil. And here's what was so astounding to me, because every sermon I preach hits me every single day, hours out of the day, uh, during the week. You guys get barely anything. I get beaten up all week. If you feel like, oh, God's been slapping me around about this anger thing, yeah, I got beat up. I got totally pulverized. Um, But here's what's so astounding to me. Think about how personally Jesus is taking your anger. Just think about that for a moment. Don't give me the tithe. Don't give me the offering. Don't even ask me for forgiveness. Leave it there. Go make it right with them. Then you can come back and we can talk. Think about how personal he makes your anger, how personally he takes it. I was trying to understand this and I was praying, and I, I think I barely understand. I don't have the mind of God, but this is what I thought of. If somebody right now was trying to hurt my kids, was literally trying to physically hurt my kids, and at the same time was trying to have a friendly conversation with me. How would that go? Would that work? Would I have a friendly, casual conversation with someone as they were trying to hurt my kids? Absolutely not. Even if my own kids are fighting with one another, I get involved. Like, hey, uh, no, you know that's not good. You know, that's how God views us. It's so personal to Him that He says. No, we can't have a good time until you guys deal with this and address this. That's how personal he takes it. If you're at odds with them, you're at odds with us. And you got to get right. you got to address it. You better get right with others if you want to give praise to God. Because if you don't, and Jesus' last point, it's going to cost you dearly. Jesus has such a simple sermon on anger. It will cost you. The cost of unfinished anger is more than you want to pay. It's more than you want to pay. Look what he says. Come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you're with him on the way so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will not be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. That's, the, that's a Roman currency. It's like their lowest currency. It's like pennies for us. So he says, come to good terms. Why come to good terms? What did Jesus mean by that? You better come to good terms with them. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, One time I told one of my kids, hey, you need to go apologize to your sister. You need to go make it right. And so because I'm bigger, he's like, okay. And he listened to me. He went over to his sister and he said, hey, uh, dad said I need to apologize to you because if you weren't so wrong in taking this from me and making me upset at you, I wouldn't have hit you. And so, yeah. No. No. Yeah. My kids are actually here laughing in the front uh, first of all, that wasn't an apology, okay? And we've talked about this more than once, okay? Uh, that is not a good attitude. You know what Jesus is saying? What, what he means by "come to good terms," not just "come to terms." Come to good terms. Your attitude and how you say it makes all the difference. I want the weight to be on your shoulders. I want the way that you look at this to say, "I." It's my responsibility to come to good terms. I need to make this right. I've got to try to speak and act in such a way that we can even come to good terms, which means you can't walk up there with like, hey, this is really your fault, but I'm sorry this happened. You can't have, an, you can't have arrogance. You can't have pride. You can't make excuses. You can't be self-righteous, have a little bit of indignation about like, well, really wouldn't have happened if you weren't so horrible. You can't have that. Come to good terms with them quickly it means you got to die to self. you got to let that go. And you got to address it. It's on you to address it. If you don't come to good terms with them, no one else will, which is what he means. Uh, while you're on the way, to court is added. It's actually not in the Greek. I, I hate it that English translations add things like this. They're assuming that he means on the way to court because that's where you would go. But I want you to think about it in an Old Testament Jewish way. While you're with them on the way is a normal phrase of saying, while you're with that person. You go meet them on the road. They're going to Walmart, ride with them, walk with them, go with them. While you're on the way, try to come to good terms with them, which means you have to take the first steps and initiate making it right with them. Come to good terms with them on the way. But then Jesus says, or they're going to give you to the judge, the judge is going to give you to the officer, the officer is going to throw you in prison. In other words, if you don't reconcile with them, no one else will for you. No one else can reconcile for you, is his point. They're not gonna do it. The judge and the officer, this isn't Judge Judy. There's no therapy going on after this. You have to make it right, is what what Jesus is saying. No one else can reconcile for you. Then he says, truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last penny, a lot of your English translations say. Meaning, listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus would call sheep, listen, sheep, it will always cost you more if you wait. You will pay the full amount if you wait. The longer you wait, the more you pay. You want to make excuses for for your anger? You want to make excuses for not reconciling? You want to make excuses for the next day to go by and the next and the next? Fine but you will pay up to the last penny. It will always cost you more if you don't deal with it right here, right now. Deal with it today. The longer you wait, the more you pay. And I want to end with uh, the third king of Israel's monarchy, Solomon, considered the wisest man who will ever lived second only to Jesus. And I'm not sure why, because he had 600 wives, and that doesn't scream wisdom to me. Uh, but, this, but the Bible said he's wise, so he's wise. He's wise. But you know what that tells me? The wisest among us ought to be humble and not proud. All of us. But this is what the Holy Spirit inspires. So this isn't really on Solomon's shoulders. This is God. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the heart of fools. What if you have believed that and applied that every day? Don't let your spirit rush to angry. Do not make, fri- make friends with a hot-tempered man, an angry guy. Don't make friends with angry people. Do not associate with one easily angered. Same guy, same people. Now, why is, why is the proverb, why is wisdom telling us this, the Holy Spirit? Because you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. I grew up in a home where I thought, Once I get bigger, they can't abuse me. If I just get fat and big, they can't really hurt me. And I didn't grow up in a godly home, and I didn't learn about how to deal with anger. Like some of you, I don't know how many of you farmers, how many of you good families, you love Jesus, and yet you throw things at the wall, or you punch something, or you slam a door, or you go get in your truck and you speed off, or you... You, do, so you react out of anger, and, and your excuse, like mine, is, Well, I can't help it. You can, and you should, and it's a sin. We need to follow Jesus' simple instructions on how to re- deal with our own anger and not make excuses for unrighteous, sinful anger. It's never right, period. Heavenly Father, We love you because you first loved us. And I'm reminded of the most quoted verse of the Bible. You are merciful and compassionate and slow to anger. Thank you for not being like us. Would you help us be a church and a people that is not easily angered, but extends grace and mercy and forgiveness? I pray today that you would do a miraculous work, that you would powerfully work in my brothers and sisters, in my own heart. If there is unresolved conflict that I need to address today, would you tell me and would you give me the grace and mercy to confess that before you and deal with it? You did not create us to be an evil, angry people. Sanctify us, change us, Help us to stand on your word no matter what the culture, no matter what our tradition says. We know it's a sin. Would you forgive us and have mercy? Would you start a revival in Newton that the church would be confessional first and that you would use us to extend your grace to others? We love you, and it's only by the power and work of your spirit, by the sacrifice of your son, by the love that you have given us. Would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.